We have been uh, talking about prayer for quite a while now, since February, and we're focusing right now uh, for the rest of our time on Paul's prayer priorities for the church and asking ourselves if these are the things Paul prays about for the church and for us as individuals who make up the church. For example, what are we going to pray for these new members who, who just joined us today? If these are the things Paul prays about, then perhaps they should be uh, heaviest on our heart too as we pray for God's people. So let me pray and uh, we'll dive in as we look uh, this morning at hope and faith. Father, we need you. I know I, know I need you right now uh, as, as we open your word and, and we think together about uh, these things that were so heavy on the heart of Paul as he prayed for the churches. Um, would you help us to see by the power of your spirit what these priorities are, uh, to see the hope that we have in Christ, and, and help us to be strengthened by faith uh, in Christ this morning. Would you do that in us as we uh, come and sit under your word today? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I wonder uh, if, if you would follow me as I suggest that um, there's sort of a spectrum or continuum of life experiences. I'm, I'm thinking about what are, the, what are the Ephesians going through as they get this letter from the Apostle Paul that contains these two prayers that David read for us earlier. What are they going through? And what are we going through as we sit and think together about these prayers that Paul is praying for the church. It seems that there's kind of a continuum. On, on one end, uh, you might say, uh, for some folks, life is just falling apart. Everything that could go wrong is going wrong. On the other end of the spectrum of the continuum, it, life is full. Everything's going right, and they're wearing a T-shirt that says, I'm too blessed to be stressed, right? Anyway. So there's the two extremes. Life is falling apart. Life is full. And the Ephesian folks who got the letter and you and I who are receiving it today, we sit somewhere on that continuum. Um, maybe somewhere in the middle we might say, well, life is fine. <laughs> you know, it's okay. There, there's some things that are falling apart, and there's some things where life is full. But so I, I don't know where you are this morning as you receive this letter and these prayers from Paul. Uh, I don't know where you are in the realm of health, finances. I don't know what kind of shape your relationships at work or home or with friends or neighbors or your extended family I don't know whether in all these areas your life is falling apart or whether it's full or whether you would just say, eh, it's fine. Um, the question that I've been thinking about is, and I've had a couple of conversations with some of you about is, should we pray about all these kinds of things? You know, Should we pray that God would heal us? Should we pray that God would heal our relationship? Should we Pray that he would provide for us uh, financially when we're struggling. And, you know, aren't all these things okay th 
things to pray for, or pray that God would provide these things. Um, is it okay to pray for the full part of life where these things are going well? Um, yeah. I think I said last week, Paul certainly prayed about these things for people. He told Timothy, who was sick apparently and had a stomach issue, take a little wine for your stomach. Say. He cared about all of these kinds of, uh, of things, whether um, these areas of our lives were full or whether they were falling apart. But is there a prayer that God will answer yes to when he doesn't give us what we think is the full life? Are there deeper, more foundational things that we need that we can pray for? Is there something that we can have, whether our lives are full or whether they're falling apart? Is there something that's more important to have than a full life where everything's going well? Is there something that's more important to us even when our lives are falling apart? I think the apostles would say, yes, faith hope, and love. We saw last week in in Colossians chapter 1 that Paul thanked God for their faith, hope, and love. And, And I read to you this quote from Jim Peterson last week where he says, as we trace these three words, faith, hope, and love, through the epistles, it becomes apparent that the writers assessed their ministries and the progress of the churches with the question, How are they doing in the areas of faith, hope, and love? Um, Then I came across this this week from Dan Allender when he said this. When Paul addressed his letters to the various churches, he usually began by thanking them for their faith, hope, and love. Similarly, when there were difficulties in a church, he viewed the core problem in terms of the same trilogy, the faith, hope, and love. He told the Corinthians and Philippians, for example, that they needed to grow in love. We're going to look at Philippians next week. On the other hand, he told the church at Ephesus, where we are today, what we're talking about today, he told them that he was praying that their eyes might be opened even more to the glorious riches of the hope that awaited them. So, I believe, yes, following Paul's example, there are... uh, Things we can pray for, um, for ourselves and for our church and for each other that are deeper and more foundational, that uh, those of us whose lives are full need to, need to think about. If, if I'm happy and satisfied with life because things are going well, I need to ask myself, but how am I doing in faith, hope, and love? Because that's more important than whether everything's going well. And for our lives, those of us who feel like our lives are falling apart, we need to ask, how am I doing in faith, hope, and love? Because I believe Paul teaches I can have those things no matter what's happening circumstantially in my life. So this morning, we're going to look at hope and love. Um, and if you look on your Sermon notes page, that's five, I believe. Um, Here's how I'm summarizing these two. In chapter one, we're going to see that Paul, 
Paul prays for hearts that will see their hope in Jesus. And in chapter 3, Paul prays for hearts that will be strengthened through faith in Jesus. So uh, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning, um, probably a little more in chapter 1 um, than in chapter 3. Um, praying for hearts that will see their hope in Jesus. Um, this is what Paul said. He said that he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, asking God to give you a gift, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. Well, he just, as Paul does, he's just piling layer upon layer, all saying the same thing. This is all about um, seeing, experientially knowing um, the hope that we have in Jesus. It requires a spirit of wisdom and revelation, knowledge of him. It requires that the spirit opens the eyes of our hearts, enlightens them so that we may know. And that word know is one that is not merely intellectual knowledge, it's, it's experiential knowledge, that we may know it, see it, and experience it. One commentator asked the question, why would Paul pray for a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation to be given to those who already possess the Holy Spirit? He said back in verse 13, we have the Holy Spirit sealing us for the day of redemption. Well, what Paul is praying for here and saying by praying for something that we already have is that what is already present must be strengthened. Um, we need a deeper understanding of the meaning of the gospel and a clearer insight into the will of God for our lives so that we can approach the fullness or the falling apartness of our lives with God's perspective and gospel hope. So what he goes on to do then is say, um, you, you have this, this hope, in, and he wants you to see this hope and have this vision because the hope is that you have these resources, and he's about to list out several resources that we have in Christ that gives us hope in him. And I, and I want to explain those, but I'm going to try something here, and we'll just see if it works. I'm going to try to use Iron Man's special, powerful suit as an illustration for the Christian life. So just forgive me. Um, you know, if this doesn't work, we'll just erase this all and try again next week, okay? But Iron Man. Now, some of you are looking at me like, who in the world is Iron Man? What is he, a steel worker? No. Um, Iron Man, the superhero, the Marvel superhero. You're, you're really, you're, are you with me, Iron Man? Okay, good. Iron Man, as you know, Tony Stark, he's just a regular human being. Yeah, he's rich. Yeah, he's smart. Yes, he thinks he's good looking. But he's Tony Stark. He's a human. But he's created this suit with his money and knowledge um, that... Um, he wears, and when he wears it, he's a superhero. When he wears this suit, he is able to see through the helmet and through the, the goggles that are built in. He is able to see things that he otherwise would not be able to see. 
if you've ever watched the movies, you can, they show uh, his point of view, and he's got all these things going on inside this helmet, and he knows there's a missile coming at him from exactly this far away at this speed. It will arrive in this many seconds. He, he can see everything in a way that he'd never be able to see it unless he was inside the suit. But also, it's not only about his vision and what he can see, it's about the resources that are available to him. He's got the ability to fly. He's got the ability to shoot lasers and rockets. And uh, he's got this armor that he can just get pounded and pounded and pounded and he survives. There's all these resources and power available, available to him because he's in the suit. Now, here's the, here's the lame connection I'm going to try to make here, okay? Um, this is just the way I think. Um, because I am in Christ, I have at my disposal a way of seeing and resources that otherwise I do not have. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. He spent the first half of chapter 1 telling us about what it means for us to be in Christ, which is his favorite description of a Christian someone who is in Christ. And now he's saying, I want you, I'm praying that God would show you, open the eyes of your heart so that you can see the resources you have available to you in whatever circumstances you're facing in your life. So, um, that's what he's praying. He's praying that we would start to understand what it means to live in this suit, to live in Christ. Um, Here we go. What are these resources? He says, first of all, uh, he wants us to be able to see what is the hope to which he has called us. Uh, Literally, it says in, in the original language, what is the hope of his calling? What is the hope of his calling? Of his calling us to himself making us ours. I also want to say that in this sermon, I'm very much indebted to uh, some thoughts by Tim Keller, uh, Paul Tripp, uh, William Hendrickson. So um, anything that's good here, give them and Jesus the credit. The rest you can blame on me. Um, What is the hope of his calling on us? Keller said this, What Paul is saying here is if you want hope, if you want assurance, if you want to know you're loved, realize that your salvation is due to his calling. Don't look at yourself. Look at him. He says, how do you get hope? You don't look at, at, oh, I prayed this prayer when I was this many years old. You You don't look at what you've done. You don't say, I've gone to church. I was... You know, I got the attendance award for going to church and Sunday school. You don't look at what you've done. You look at what he's done. You look at how free his grace is. You look at how he comes into you and opens your heart when you are not even seeking him. And then he quotes Paul in Romans 10.20. And Paul is quoting Isaiah where God says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Keller goes on to say, have you found him? You didn't seek him. He sought you. He opened your heart. He called you. That's where you get your hope. It's his calling. 
So one of the resources we have available to us is to remember that our hope is that he's called us. Don't look at what you if you need hope to know that you belong to Jesus, don't look at yourself and what you've said or done. Look at his calling you. Secondly, we have the hope of his inheritance. Paul said, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And we have to ask ourselves, what, is, what does he mean? Um, what, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Does this mean we are his inheritance or that we have an inheritance in him? And I, I've read a bunch of commentaries this week, and some say it means that we are his inheritance, and some say it's, uh, he is our inheritance, and some say it's both. Well, then I read John 17 again that we looked at a few weeks ago, and, um, and I think it's both. Listen, listen to some of these quotes from John 17 that talk about how we are his inheritance and he is ours. Jesus prayed and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. We are his inheritance given to him by the Father. In verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. We are his inheritance. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, he says. We are his inheritance, and they have kept your word. In verses 9 and 10, he says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. We are his inheritance. He goes on, all mine are yours, and yours are mine. Again, we're his inheritance. And then he says, and I am glorified in them. We are his inheritance, and he gets glory from us. This is what he gets. He gets glory from us as part of his inheritance. And then later at the end of John 17, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Well, that's our inheritance. Jesus is our inheritance. We get the riches of his glory. He continues, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, Jesus says. He's our inheritance. We get his glorious presence in us. He is our inheritance. And he says, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. I love this one. Jesus is our inheritance, and we get the love that the Father has for him. That's what he said, that you love them even as you love me. Do you understand, folks, that if you are in Christ, the Father loves you with the same love that he loves his son Jesus? That's your inheritance. And then he goes on to say, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, again, we're his inheritance, that they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. He's our inheritance. We get to see and savor his glorious presence in person, face to face, forever. There's two implications of this. First, 
what is, it, what is the implication that we are his inheritance? That it's, he delights in us as his inheritance. It means this, friends. You're valued, you're wanted, and you're treasured by Jesus Christ. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. You are valued, you're wanted, and you're treasured by him because you are his inheritance. And one thing that that means is, is that when you fear that you will not gain value by who you are or what you do or what you accomplish, um, or that you will not be wanted by a certain person or group of people in your world, or that you fear that you will never be treasured by a man or treasured by a woman or treasured by your mother or your father or treasured by a child, you can know this, that you are valued, wanted, and treasured by Jesus Christ. You are His inheritance. And so that means you don't have to give your heart and your life to someone else to get value, to get wanted, and to be a treasure. You don't have to give yourself away to someone else or something else to get those things. You have them as your, because you have them as your inheritance because you're his inheritance. And secondly, What are the implications that Jesus is our inheritance? I was reading Psalm 16 this morning, and at the end of that psalm, I love this verse, it says, In your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our inheritance in Christ is that we have full and forever joy and pleasure in Him. And so what does that mean? Uh, uh, Tim Keller was helpful with this. He reminds us of, remember Esau and Jacob, the twins? Esau was the older brother, and so the older brother in, in that scenario gets the birthright. He gets twice as much inheritance as his brother does. Um, and he came in hungry from hunting one day, and he was hungry. And what did he do? Do you remember? He sold his birthright. He sold his inheritance to his brother for a bowl of stew. This is what we do when we disobey God. We sell our inheritance for a bowl of stew. And this is what Keller says. He says, when you're standing before one of those forks in the road where you can either be what God wants you to be or you can go over here and disobey him and immediately get instant gratification, you're like Esau. You're looking at it, and when you disobey, what, when you disobey, what you're really saying is, well, what good is the inheritance when I'm starving right now? But your birthright is the glorious inheritance in the saints. Keller says, when God looks at you and says, yes, obey me, it's going to cost you. But wait until you see what I'm going to put back in. What you lose for obeying me is nothing compared to what I'm going to give you. And so Keller says, if God is your trust, God will be your reward. If you are your own trust, you better get used to being your own reward because that's all you're going to get. Friends, Paul is praying that the eyes of our hearts would be open so that we could know the hope 
of the inheritance that we are and that we are going to get. It will change our lives if we set that resource into action as we face whatever we're facing. The next resource that Paul wants us to see is Christ's power, his power. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Again, he's stacking descriptive words, immeasurable greatness, power, working, great might, worked. What kind of power are we talking about? It's the power that God used to raise Christ from the dead. It's resurrection power. So again, forgive me, but I found Keller to be very helpful to me in this. He points out that the power that no one on earth can defeat is death. All of our science, all of our superstitions, all of our quote-unquote spiritualities, they're no match for death. Death wins every time. Look in the mirror. Death is winning. But for the one who is in Christ, death no longer has that ultimate power. The condemnation and curse of spiritual death has been removed and reversed by the cross and the resurrection. And as Keller says, the physical death we face is going to do nothing but bring us into the arms of the one who says, you are my treasure. There's an elder in our church in Dallas who used to say this all the time whenever he was talking about you know, whatever surgery or ailment that he had recently been dealing with, he'd look at me and he'd go, eh, there's nothing wrong with me that a resurrection won't fix. But it's not just that power after we die when we will be resurrected one day. Paul says in Romans 8 that that power lives in our mortal bodies now. We have his power. And as we saw last week, that power is a power we need to endure, to hold up under difficult circumstances. And it is the power we need for patience to hold up in difficult relationships. We have it at our disposal. And finally, the other resource is his sovereignty. He says that, God seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and and power and dominion. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. And this is where I found Paul Tripp helpful. He says that these verses describe the sovereign rule of Jesus. And he says that first Paul wants you to know that the rule of your Redeemer is comprehensive. Everything is under his power, under his rule. All of those things that make your life full, all of those things that you would say cause your life to be falling apart, they're all under his sovereign rule. Secondly, Paul wants you to know that the rule of your Lord is personal. He says that he rules over everything for the church, for your sake. It's it's not just... Jesus is in charge of everything. He's in charge of everything for your sake. And finally, Paul wants you to know that the rule over uh, your that the rule of God 
for you is redemptive. It has an end. It has, it has something that's happening. He is working all things for your good. And so when Paul's praying for us um, that we might know Jesus and know the hope we have in him and the resources we have in him, um, He's not saying that it'll be the end of your troubles. You'll always have troubles. But Keller says he's saying that it would be the end of your inability to address your troubles. He's saying that you will have trouble, but I'm going to give you resources so that you can address your troubles. And so, just as uh, Iron Man's suit... um, gives him vision and resources. Uh, Paul is praying that we will have a heart that knows experientially, a heart that knows that it is called by Jesus, that it has an inheritance in Jesus, that it has the indwelling power of Jesus, and that it sits under the loving rule and care of King Jesus. This is what we should pray for each other. Pray for all the the healing and the help and the everything, pray that. But pray this, that our eyes would see and our hearts would rise in hope because we have resources now to address the troubles. Pray this, as Jonathan Edwards was known to pray, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. <laughs> Let's say it this way, Lord, Stamp Jesus on my eyeballs. And the second thing in, in chapter 3, this will be brief, I promise. Um, he prays for hearts that will be strengthened through faith in Jesus. He says he prays that God may give you as a gift to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then he says that same thing in a different way that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So being strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being and having Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that's the same thing. By faith in Christ, Christ by his spirit indwells us and strengthens us with his power. Power for what? Power to overcome and live the victorious life? He says, power that you, may, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's praying that you would have strength, that by faith in Jesus you would have strength to know the love of Jesus. The limitless love of Jesus. And I I can't say it any better than this. This is what uh, William Hendrickson said about this. He says, Paul prays that the Ephesians and all believers down through the centuries may be so earnest and zealous in the pursuit of their objective to know the love of Christ that they will never get to the point where they will say, we have arrived. Now we know all there is to know about the love of Christ. He says, The finite heart and mind can never fully grasp or know infinite love. Even in the life 
hereafter in heaven, God will never say to his redeemed, now I have told you all there is to to be told about this love. I close the book for the last page has been read. No, Hendrickson says, there will always be more and more and still more to tell. And that will be the blessedness of the heavenly life. Paul's prayer is that we would live by faith, dependence, rest in the love of Christ so that we can know more of the love of Christ so that in turn we'll know more of the love of Christ so that in turn we'll know more of the love of Christ because it's limitless. And if he's praying that we would have strength to explore it and comprehend it in a growing way more and more and more, it must mean we need to know that we are loved by Christ. It must mean that I, when my life is full and everything's going just great, need to remember there's something better, that I'm loved by Jesus. It must mean that when everything's falling apart, I need to know that there's something more important than everything to stop falling apart, and that is to know that I'm loved by Jesus. And I want to go back to that image on the front of your bulletin. Um, Faith, as Nathan said, is being attached to the rescuer. Faith requires me to say I'm helpless, I'm powerless out here, and I'm completely dependent upon the one to whom I'm attached to save me. But hope... Hope is saying, once I'm attached, I have the sure and certain hope that I'm safe right now. My heart can rest in my rescue now. But think about it. Think about the guys in this boat. They're safe. They're saved. They're rescued. They're being pulled to a harbor somewhere. But the rescue that is happening now is not yet completed. And when they get there, they're going to enjoy the rescue even more. They're no longer going to be out at sea. There are resources coming that they don't even have yet. While I'm rescued now, the rescue will be complete then, and that assurance gives me hope to endure the journey home. Friends, this table that we come to this morning is a picture that your hope is in Jesus, your rescuer. That when you're attached to him, you have the sure and certain hope that you have his calling. It's for you, Jesus said, my body given for you. This blood is for you. You have the sure and certain hope of his inheritance. You and I will sit at at his table as one of his saints and with his saints forever. You have the sure and certain hope of his power Jesus fills you with his fullness when you feed on him by faith today. So come and find strength for your journey home here. You have the sure and certain hope of his sovereignty. The greatest threat to your relationship with God, the greatest falling apart that you could experience, is unforgiven sin that results in spiritual death. But this table... 
shows us that at the cross, Jesus disarmed sin, Satan, and death. He broke the reign over those things over your life. And finally, at this table, you have something to trust. You have his limitless love. His limitless love. And so I invite you to come. See his love for you here. Savor his love for you here. Let his love satisfy your love-starved heart. Let his love sustain and strengthen you to love him and to love the people that he puts in your path this week. And let's pray for each other. Pray all of those things that, that we typically pray when we have prayer requests. Pray them. But let's not to forget. Let's not forget to pray for one another um, that we would have hope and faith in the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you uh, for Christ. We thank you for this table that that so clearly pictures his love for us, that show, so clearly reminds us of all the resources that we have in him uh, when we trust him, when we're in Christ. I pray this morning that um, as your people come and feed on you by faith, Lord Jesus, that you would open our eyes to see the hope, open our hearts to trust that you love us with a limitless love. And we ask that you would set aside this bread and juice and and set it aside from its normal use and let it be for us a picture of the love you have for us and the power you offer us when we trust you. In Christ's name I pray.